Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Hi, everybody. This is Bill, and this is our tour portion commentary on Yitro, or Jethro, which is taken from Exodus, or Shemot, chapter 18, verse 1, going all the way through to the end of chapter 20. Of course, this portion gets its name from Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And in the opening verses of this Torah portion, and the exchange between Moses and Jethro, and the advice that Jethro is giving Moses, it's debated back and forth as to when this occurred. Was it, was it before the giving of the Torah, or was it after? And admittedly, it does seem to be a little bit out of place. However, we're not going to really get into the nuts and bolts of that argument, but we're content to consider that it's in chronological order, but we're also content to believe that sometimes there are things that are given in the Torah that aren't necessarily given in chronological order. However, here's what we do glean from this exchange between Jethro and his son-in-law Moses, and that is that even though he was an outsider, nevertheless, he provided wise counsel that benefited Israel greatly which demonstrates, as far as I'm concerned, that outsiders can provide wide counsel to Israel, that Israel doesn't necessarily have everything figured out. This advice that was given to Moses by Jethro was so appreciated that years later, Saul, the king of Israel, warned Jethro's descendants, those Midianites that were of his family and clan, to flee from among the Amalekites. So what's my point in all of this? First, we as believers can learn from the rabbis, from their views and their commentaries and their opinions. Doesn't necessarily mean we agree with them all. But on the flip side of that, we see that they can also learn from us because for the most part, they consider us to be outsiders. And some of the things that they could learn from us, as we have found to be true from the things that we have learned from them in part, some of those things can be life-changing. And specifically what I'm addressing here is the fact that you and I, those of us who are not born ethnically Israeli, but have been born again in the Messiah, have been grafted into this good or cultivated olive tree, are supposed to be provoking them to jealousy, which then, as far as I'm concerned, suggests that we have some advice to give them that they need to listen to. And were they to listen to it, they would benefit greatly. So that is going to kind of set the tone for what we're talking about, at least initially. And so as we move on into the Torah portion, I guess we should point out that Jethro or Yitro had apparently been a distinguished personality in Midian. In fact, Jethro, spelled in Hebrew Yud Tav Resh Vav, may have in fact been a title. Of course, his notoriety today is not so much a chief of Midian as much as it is that he was Moses' father-in-law. And as such, he is esteemed by all of Israel. He is received by all of Israel. And so then, it would seem that at some point he may have joined himself to Israel. Again, demonstrating that, quote-unquote, outsiders, through their mutual commitment to the God of Israel are considered to be Israel. And so his name went from being Yeter, 
Yud Tav Resh to being Yitro, the, the letter Vav being added. And that Vav, of course, is a letter that in its name and in its form is understood to, to be a hook. And a hook is something that joins two things together. And of course, later on, we're going to have people such as Rahav, Ruth, Elijah, and you and me. So, interesting that this particular Torah portion, one that, by the way, contains Israel's call to be a light into the nations, that contains the Ten Commandments, the basic outline for living given to Israel, is named after a quote-unquote outsider who offered Israel some very sage advice and who apparently became part of Israel by joining himself to that people. So as we begin the Torah portion, it says, When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, that is Moses, and her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For the God of my father, said he, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness where he encamped at the Mount of God. And so then it would seem that Jethro had heard about the plagues, the splitting of the sea, perhaps even the war with Amalek. And all these reports prompted him to bring Moses' family to him at Choreb. Now, there's something interesting that rabbis point out here, and that is a, they make a distinction between Jethro and Amalek in this fashion. Both of these groups, Jethro and Amalek, had heard of the events, the plagues, the splitting of the sea, etc., but had arrived at different conclusions. Jethro decided to join himself to Israel. Amalek decided to come against Israel. And so, apparently, when God does something through and in his people, others, outsiders, will be driven either to a conclusion that they should join themselves to God's people or that they should make war on God's people. Because how can people hearing of the same thing have two different views that are so far apart? I would argue it has to be predicated upon the condition of their heart because there are those who acknowledge the hand of God and those who do not. And those who refuse to acknowledge God in these events, whether they are past, present, or future, they will interpret them to suit their particular purpose. And again, that's evidence of what their heart is like. So Amalek apparently interpreted all these events as why they should go against Israel. Others will see it as God calling people to repentance. Others will exploit it to advance their own agenda. But Jethro saw these miraculous events as a means to reunite the family, which is an interesting thing to consider. Because as we mentioned, as we read, Moses had apparently sent his family back to Midian after the events that are described for us in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26 the circumcision of his son, presumably Eliezer, and so he had sent his family back home. And so again, Jethro apparently sees the events, the splitting of the sea, the plagues, etc., 
as a way or the provocation, perhaps is the better way to put it, to reunite the family. And so that's interesting because, again, this is an outsider, supposedly, who is actually taking the initiative to bring the family back together. Very, very interesting because this has prophetic overtones. Because the events that are transpiring today, they're troubling, they're ominous, but we understand that they are signs that eventually leads us to restoration because we understand from the prophets there's going to be a future exodus and there's going to be this outpouring of plagues, if you were, or these wondrous signs. All that the family could be reunited so that this good olive tree that we mentioned briefly earlier can begin to really be fruitful and produce its fruit, natural and wild branch, doing the same thing. Now, this particular reunification that we're referring to here in Exodus 18 comes at the foot of the mountain where the covenant is presented. It's also, I think, interesting to note that Gershom, Moses' eldest son, means stranger or sojourner there. And where would that be? That would be in the world. Eliezer, his other son, is my God helps or my helper who delivered Moses from Pharaoh, who is a picture of the adversary, who is a picture of the world. And so these two sons that Jethro is bringing, of course, along with Zipporah, his wife, to Moses has prophetic overtones in their name. I was a stranger there. We are strangers in the world, but my God saved me. He helped me. He delivered me from the bondage of Pharaoh slash the adversary slash the world. And so we are going to be regathered and reunited as a people. So all these things are prophetic. And again, who took the initiative to restore the family? It's this outsider. And so everyone is brought to the mountain to be joined together and then presented unto the creator as one. Now look at what the prophet Hosea has to say about all these things that we're kind of alluding to and addressing. Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will remove the names of the Belim from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. And so again, just to kind of summarize this, here's an outsider that is playing a very key role in bringing the family that had been separated back together. And what is his provocation to do this? It's all the great and wondrous signs that God has poured out upon Egypt to deliver his people so that they could come to the mountain out there in the wilderness as a precursor of what was going to come at the end of days, as Hosea just described for us. In verses 6 through 9, 
It says that Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law and his family, and he's bowing before him. And then he relates to him all the deeds that God performed on their behalf. And he also told him of all the travail and the weariness that had come upon them, which would include the events of Mara, Masa, Meribah, Rephidim, etc. And then in verse 9 it tells us, And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, even though he's not an Israeli. He's nevertheless overjoyed at Israel's deliverance. And so then in verse 10, it says that he blessed the Lord for his deliverance and acknowledged the Lord's sovereignty. In verse 11, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. So then he had seen that God had humbled the pride of the Egyptians and at the same time had delivered Israel. And so tradition has it that At that instant, he forsook idolatry and he followed the God of Israel. In fact, in verse 12, he presented a burnt offering to God and he celebrated with a festive meal, it says. And so there's a common theme that runs through the Exodus story and the prophecies concerning the future in gathering. And that is, in the end, all will know that I am the Lord. And so as a picture of that, here's a Midianite, an outsider, who, hearing all of these things from Moses, we would assume even before he met up with Moses, but here he is, a Midianite, acknowledging that the Lord is God. He comes to know that, quote, I am the Lord, and thus he becomes part of the family of God. And there will be many in the end of days who will come to know that he is the Lord, and many of them, by all of the wondrous and ominous things that he's doing in the earth. Now, here's something that I thought was kind of interesting as it relates to Yithro's Midianite connection. You can read in 1 Kings, in chapter 17 specifically, that in Elijah's day, during the time of famine, that ravens brought him meat and bread twice a day. Here's why that's interesting. Because the Hebrew phrase for ravens is orevim, Orevim, the root word being Arav, which is mixed or mingled, but also alludes to Arabs. The point is, Jethro was an Arab. And so are there prophetic implications attached to this? Go back and consider the prophecy of Hosea 2, because he's going to bring his people into the wilderness. And so it's going to be surprising to see what wilderness that is. Is it a specific one? And I have an opinion as to what that is. Is it just generically saying wilderness, or does it happen the way it did in the first Exodus? And so it's going to be surprising to see who comes to the aid of his people, who does and who doesn't do according to the words of Yeshua. Because speaking to some of the religious people, he said this, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, outsiders... Many will go into the kingdom before some of you people who regard yourselves as being the sons of Abraham. And so then, the key seems to be those who know him as opposed to those who knew about him. Because in Matthew chapter 7, there are many who are turned away when Yeshua says, I never knew you. You see, Jethro, a Midianite, an Arab, came to know that the Lord, he is God. Beginning in verse 13, it says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, 
And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? And why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And that word laws is Torot. There are other times in Scripture when people came to, quote, inquire of the Lord. An example is found in Genesis 25 when Rebekah went to come to inquire of the Lord because she was troubled about what was going on in her womb. And so here we see, and this is why I'm bringing it out, it, this inquiring of the Lord might be as simple as someone going to someone else who has spiritual authority. The people were coming to Moses in this instant. In Genesis 25, when Rebekah goes to inquire of the Lord, tradition says that she went to Shem to do that. So again, it might be that when we see this phrase that these people are going to someone of spiritual authority, which would in turn infer that these people have been spiritually authorized to help people with these difficult issues. Now notice that if this is happening in chronological order, then it is before the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And so then that would substantiate the view that the Torah existed before Sinai. It's eternal. Why are we saying that? Because Moses tells Jethro, people are coming to inquire, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his Torah, his instructions. So again, if this is chronological, then... That's evidence that the Torah existed before Sinai. It was just codified in Sinai. Another example to substantiate this is the fact that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain did. Well, how did he know to offer the lamb, the firstlings of his flock? How did he know that that was a more excellent sacrifice if the Torah didn't come into being till Sinai? Noah distinguished between clean and unclean animals. How did he know the difference between clean and unclean animals if there wasn't a Torah yet to tell him that? So all of this is to say that in Moses' response to Jethro, we have a hint that the Torah of God has always been and will forever be. Now in verses 17 and 18, it says, Moses' father-in-law said, the thing you do is not good. You will wear away. And so Jethro's pointing out what should have been obvious that all of this was way too much for one man. And so he made suggestions to Moses, but at the same time, he made it very clear that these suggestions should be approved by God. And those suggestions were a system of delegating authority, a lower court system, if you will, that would all answer to Moses. And so Moses would still be able to teach the people the laws and the statutes but others would be able to handle some of these situations that weren't so demanding. And so that would relieve him of some of the duties and because he was going to wear out, as Jethro said. Now, verses 21 and 22, it laid out the requirements for those who would help Moses judge the people. They had to be able men, it says, or men of accomplishment. They had to have proven themselves over time. They had to be men who fear God. They had to be men of truth, and they had to be men who hate unjust gain, meaning they wouldn't be bribed. 
And these men should be such that they would not be tempted by those who would try to influence their judgment. They couldn't be lazy men. They couldn't be apathetic men by nature because they had to be men of accomplishment. And they obviously had to possess a knowledge of God's laws. And they had to be able to recognize the truth, which means they needed some discernment. And if they feared God, they most likely would not fear men, nor would they be influenced by those men. And they obviously then would not be taken in by the lure of money or power. They would be incorruptible and they would conduct themselves in a way that was above suspicion. And so then if this advice seemed good, then Moses would have judges over 10, over 50s, over hundreds, and even over thousands, meaning that everyone could make their case without one man or just a small group of men, for that matter, being overwhelmed. But that also means it would expedite the process whereby people could have their grievances heard and then acted upon, perhaps quicker. In verse 22, it says that they were to judge at all seasons every small matter, but the larger matters were to be brought to Moses. He would be acting more or less as the Supreme Court. And so Jethro told Moses to provide such men. And that Hebrew root there is chazah, which means to gaze, to have a vision, to see those things that are normally not visible. This is implying that Moses was to look beyond what was apparent on the outside. He was to use his discernment, prophetic insight, into selecting these men and not just go by what it seems to be, but to really analyze and to really check these guys out before he placed them in these positions. And this is similar to what we see in Samuel's selection of David as the future king, because it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 16. When they came, that is, Jesse's sons, he looked on Eliav and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, because he was such a large and nice-looking young man. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so those that would have appeared able to Moses were rejected in favor of the one who was able, a man after God's own heart in the case of Jesse's sons. And so that is the idea here when Jethro tells Moses that he is to provide such men. He is to really look at these men, but don't just go by appearances. Look at the heart. Look at the character. Look at the integrity. Look at those things. And by the way, this criteria helped to inspire the founders of America in the formation specifically of the House of Representatives, because though elected... It was to be able men who sought to fill these positions. And so the people were to elect able men. Initially, U.S. senators were not elected directly by people, but by their state representatives, because that would promote the goal of selecting able men, not popular men. And so this idea came from the Midianite, Jethro. Now, as is always the case, over time, these standards are abandoned, and thus the chaos that we see going on in the, in the world, and particularly in this country. But that's another story for another time. When people know that virtuous men rule with integrity, 
then they know that their problems can be coped with much better. But compare what happens when people feel well-connected and corrupt people rule them. In other words, they know everybody and they're just as corrupt as the day is long. There's not going to be peace, not for very long, but there's always going to be turmoil. So again, where did this concept originate from? As far as the record goes, from this Midianite Jethro. Verse 23 says, If you do this and God allows it, you shall endure and the people shall go in peace. So he's acknowledging that God, first of all, must give his consent to this if it is to succeed. And then he acknowledges that the people will have their voice heard and they'll not have to wait all day to get an answer. And it says in verse 24 that Moses hearkened unto the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And verse 27 It says that Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went into his own land. Now, this parting is going to be spoken of again in Numbers chapter 10, and there it says that Moses pleaded with him to stay. Now, it does not say whether he did or didn't, but it might be what's written here. However, there are those who believe that Jethro did, in fact, end up coming into the land of Israel, joining himself to Israel. Now we're going to go into chapter 19, and this is the arrival at Mount Sinai. The subsequent giving of the Torah at Sinai is seen then as a climax of the Exodus. Shavuot, or we call it sometimes Pentecost, that's the day that is linked to the giving of the Torah, is the day that God came down on top of the mountain. It's also called an Adzeret, or a conclusion to Passover, meaning that Passover and Shavuot, the Exodus and Sinai are connected. They're bookends, if you will. The goal of Passover is Mount Sinai because liberty, that is deliverance from Egypt, without the law or the instructions given at Sinai will eventually result in lawlessness. So again, these two events, the Passover in Egypt, the giving of the Torah, what would become Shavuot at Sinai is connected. You can't have one without the other because, again, the freedom that comes at Passover, if there are no laws given at Sinai to govern the people, then the end result is going to be lawlessness. Likewise, the resurrection, without the resurrection, I should say, the crucifixion wouldn't even serve a purpose. There would be no point to acknowledge the crucifixion if there isn't the resurrection. Because the resurrection is what makes possible my reconciliation back to the Creator. Because if Yeshua is still dead, in a matter of speaking, Paul says, we're still in our sin. The resurrection is what made the events of the book of Acts possible. And the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 specifically, is in some ways a replay or a reflection of what happened at Mount Sinai as described in Exodus 19 and 20. So then the release from Egyptian bondage at Passover made the journey to Sinai possible. And that's where, of course, the covenant was given. It brought the tribes into allegiance when the one God and the kingdom of heaven was truly inaugurated in the earth. And so the giving and the acceptance of the Torah is at the core of Israel's purpose, and that is to be a light. Receiving the Torah is Israel's national heritage, meaning that it was given to them, 
but they had to conform to it. To give this to a nation that was not willing to conform to it, giving it to the nations at large that are pagan and idolatrous or steeped in immorality would be like taking the pearl and casting it before swine. However, that being said, number one, Israel has never attained perfection. It's always fallen short of the goal. But also, Israel's purpose and mandate is to be a light to those nations. So those nations seeing light will come out of their idolatry and their immorality and their paganism and their darkness. But again, Israel, even though they've been given that standard and that mandate, have never attained the fullness of it. At least I don't believe they have. And I believe that's going to come in the days leading up to the advent of the Messiah or soon after he returns. But even though they haven't lived up to it in its fruition, in its fullness, They still, however, like Jacob, acknowledge the sanctity of that national heritage, that birthright, if you will. And so in Exodus 19, it says, In the third month, after the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession. Sgula is the Hebrew phrase there. You shall be my treasured possession from among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Goy Kadosh is the Hebrew phrase there. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. So then, Israel entered the wilderness of Sinai, which is in Midian, on the first day of the month that is called Sivan. It was on that very day. And this would be approximately 45 days since the Passover and leaving Egypt. And of course, coming to Sinai was the fulfillment of what God had told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Now, what does Sinai mean? In all the study that I've done on this, I don't find any source that gives a definitive meaning. However, Brown Driver Briggs says that Sinai means thorny. Now, this is interesting, if it means thorny, because of the connection between the Word of God and thorns. First of all, we go back to the beginning When God's word is ignored and the man ate the fruit of the mixed tree, we see that the ground was cursed for his sake and it was going to produce thorns and thistles. And this is what he had to face every day in order to sow and till the field because it was going to be with the sweat of his brow that he ate bread. So thorns were always in his face, so to speak. But also we see that in the parable of the sower, Thorns and thistles is one of those areas that the seed falls into, which represents the cares of life that chokes out the seed. But on the flip side of that, we also see that the living word, that is the Messiah, was crowned with thorns as he hung upon the tree on the Mount of Olives. It's therefore interesting to compare Mount Sinai with the Mount of Olives. God spoke and taught 
if you will, from Mount Sinai. Yeshua did the same thing on the Mount of Olives. God descended in a cloud upon Sinai. Yeshua ascended in a cloud from the Mount of Olives and will descend upon the Mount of Olives, it says, in like manner. Perhaps that happens after he emerges from the wilderness that's described for us in Hosea chapter 2. Because events at Mount Sinai, bringing the people out into the wilderness to the mountain to offer them a ketuvah, more or less, the Ten Commandments, that establishes the pattern for what Hosea described, luring her into the wilderness to be betrothed to her there forever. You're going to call me husband now. In other words, the betrothal referred to in Hosea is also taking place in Exodus chapter 19. And that's where Israel is assembled on a wide plain that stretches out before the mountain. And so God comes down upon that mountain in a thick cloud or a canopy forming a chuppah. This cloud apparently first appeared when they encamped at the mountain. And that's when Moses was called up into the mountain on the day that they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where he's told to speak to the house of Jacob. In fact, interestingly, that's the only time God refers to them as the house of Jacob in the Torah. So in verse 4, we continue. It says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. In other words, you were eyewitnesses to what I did to the Egyptians. Not only at the splitting of the sea, But even before that, in the land of Egypt, the plagues and the distinction that was set between you and between the Egyptians. And so you didn't hear reports of these things. These were not promises made through secondhand sources. You saw it. You heard it. You felt it. You experienced it firsthand. Likewise, those disciples that Yeshua sent out as witnesses had seen, had heard, had experienced these things. So we're making those comparisons again. In verse 4, he also said to them, And how I bore you on the wings of eagles. And those wings of eagles that he metaphorically speaks of acts as a shield between Israel and between their enemy. As I understand it, an eagle will put its young upon its back as it flies. Thus, it's protecting the young. And commentators in Jewish tradition specifically mention that this is done in order to protect the young from archers. And so we see in the Exodus account that God set his cloud between Egypt and between Israel to protect them from Pharaoh. Interestingly, in Genesis 49, archers are especially antagonistic toward Joseph. They shoot at him. And so he says, in manner of speaking, I protected you from their darts and from their arrows and from everything they were going to throw at you. I treated you like you were my young, and I put you upon my back, so to speak, and I protected you with my wings. That's followed by the statement, and then brought you unto myself. He brought them to himself, because it's important to note that God is making it clear that he is the one who is performing this. They couldn't save themselves. He did it. And so it establishes that salvation, that relationship with God, comes first and foremost by the blood of the Lamb. They were saved from Egypt because they trusted in the blood of a Lamb. Those who didn't trust in the blood of the Lamb and disregarded God's instruction to do so are the ones that perished. 
So how did they save themselves? Well, they couldn't save themselves. He had to save them. How did he do it? Trust in the blood of a lamb. And why is that important? Because it's always been about placing your trust in the blood of a lamb. And then after this, after being delivered because you trusted in the blood of the lamb, do we see that obedience to Torah comes, but not in order to be saved, but because they were saved. And likewise, we don't obey the Torah in order to be saved. We obey the Torah because we are saved. How are we saved? Same way they were, by trusting in the blood of the lamb. They were saved from Egypt, and then they were given instructions in how to live. Same thing for us. We are born again, then we keep his commandments because we love him. My good friend Brad Scott puts it this way. First, you have to have the seed, and the seed comes at Passover. Then you have the fruit, and the fruit is what Sinai represents. And so he tells them, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you unto myself upon eagle's wings. Now, if you will hear and obey, if you will keep my instructions, if you'll hear my voice, then they would be a treasured possession. Another translation says a peculiar treasure. The Hebrew term there is skula, skula, and it typically means treasure or a jewel. In Malachi chapter three, it says this. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and that word jewels is skula, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. So the same word that we find in Exodus 19 that calls them a peculiar treasure is the same word that he uses in Malachi to speak of his people as being jewels. And so it's the same concept. That root sagal means elect, to be exclusive, to be considered rare and valuable. And it comes from the idea of something that is shut up because it is so valuable. Something that you would put in a safe because it's so valuable. But the difference here is that Israel is not locked away in a safe somewhere, but is actually called to reside in the midst of the nations so that they can be a light to those nations. You consider that we are regarded as living stones, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, which some people would think automatically, oh, marble, granite, things like that. But in reality, jewels. The foundation stones of New Jerusalem, if you go and read the account, are all precious stones. The breastplate on the priest was comprised of precious stones stones. And so it's distinguished from the granite and the marble and the common stones of the temple. All stones, precious or non-precious, are formed by heat and pressure. But if that be so, then might it be that precious stones are subjected to even more heat and pressure? Also consider that precious stones are cut in order to bring out their beauty. I mean, you look at a diamond, and I'm not really well-read on the subject and not really experienced that much, but it's my understanding that when you put a true diamond and a finely cut diamond up to the light, you just you see the way that light will catch it. And so again, that's just to emphasize that many times with these precious stones, in order to truly bring out their beauty, they have to be cut. Certain things have to happen to them, or you really won't 
appreciate the true beauty of the stone. Now, the treasured status of his people is not the stone itself, per se, but its purpose. In other words, we're his own special people, a peculiar treasure, his jewels, not because of what we look like as much as it is what we do, and that is being a light to the nations. And so to really catch that light so that people's eyes attracted to his jewels, he has to take his jewels and he has to cut them. He has to polish them. He has to do things that are intended to wear off all the rough edges so that when the light catches it, that others will truly be drawn to it. Again, our treasured status is based more on our purpose and our function more so than what we look like. Then the Creator reminds us that all the earth is mine, indicating that Israel, you're going to be my special people among all the peoples because all the earth is mine. And so then you're going to be set apart from the nations in order that you might be a light to the nations. All the other nations are his possession too. It's just that Israel has been chosen to be a blessing to those other nations. That's what he told Abraham in Genesis 12. You're going to be a source of blessing to all the nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed by you and your seed. So that would say then that even if they're granite, a non-precious stone, they still serve a purpose, just as certainly as a diamond, which is a precious stone, serves its purpose. In fact, in either case, they're valuable only when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. If granite is serving its purpose, then it's more valuable than the diamond that doesn't serve its purpose. So then Israel is not called to privilege, but to service. It's not called because they're great. Israel is called to do great things. Deuteronomy chapter 7 kind of underscores this. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Skula, that same word again. Same word found in Malachi 3, Exodus 19. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So again, the common stone, the granite, the marble that is serving its purpose is more valuable than the diamond that is not serving its purpose. And Israel was called not because of who they are, but to become who they were not. And so then Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. By the way, that is the whole nation at this point in time was to be a kingdom of priests, which leads me to believe that the whole nation functioning as priest is plan A. It's apparently not his original plan that there just be the Levites to serve as priests or the sons of Aaron to serve as priests, but the whole nation was to serve as priests. And you see in this chapter that there are priests before the golden calf incident, meaning there were priests before the Levitical priesthood. Now, beginning in verse 20, it says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. 
and let the priests also. Remember, this is before the golden calf incident, before the call to the Levites and the sons of Aaron. Let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you have charged us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you. But let not the priests and the people break through to come unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. And so then it would seem that these priests were probably the firstborn that had been consecrated to God from their birth. That's found in Exodus chapter 13. Also in Exodus 24, we see, And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. The point is, the nation was to be a kingdom of priests, implying that as a nation, they were to teach other nations. They were to be a light to the nations. And it was God's presence among them that consecrated them as such. They were to cause his presence to resonate throughout all the other nations through their obedience to his commandments. In Isaiah 61, he says something to Israel that in my view validates what we just said here because it says, you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. And so Israel was called, is called, to be a holy or a set-apart nation in order to accomplish this task. That is, Israel's mandate is to be a light. That is, in fact, why they were to dwell in the land of Canaan. Abram settled in the land of Canaan in order to show them an example of light in darkness. He wasn't called from Babylon to be set apart for the sake of being set apart alone, but for the sake of being a source of blessing and Canaan, Israel, Eretz Israel, is in the midst of the nations. It's in the center of the globe. So being set apart is the method by which Israel attains the goal. Because they can't be a light if Israel is acting like the nations. And so again, the goal is to be the light. The method is to be set apart. And all of that is predicated upon... If you hear my voice and keep my covenant, they can't meet the goal and they can't walk out these things properly if they don't hear and then if they don't do. And so we are to be hearers and doers of the word in order to attain this this objective, this goal, this status of being a light to the nations. It's not based on being delivered from Egypt. It's based on doing what you were freed to do. So being born again is how we come into the relationship, but hearing and doing those instructions given at Sinai is how we bear the fruit. Now let's go back to the reference of being born on eagle's wings and then of course being brought into the wilderness. And I say that because many are looking toward the time that we are to flee into the wilderness. There is a lot of desire among some to know when is this going to happen, how is it going to happen, where are we going to go, and if now's the time. I want you to recognize in the scripture that 
when the people left Egypt, there was no vagueness, there was no uncertainty, there was no ambiguity whatsoever. They knew when they were leaving Egypt, they knew the very night. And so then, that's when he bore them unto himself upon eagles' wings. Now, notice what Revelation 12 has to say in reference to eagles' wings. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, I don't know how you see this, but as far as I'm concerned, this is obviously intended to connect us to what happened in the exodus from Egypt. Again, the prophecy in Revelation 12 of the woman being given these wings of great eagle is to connect us to what happened in the beginning, how he bore them unto himself upon eagles' wings. And so there are prophecies that abound throughout Scripture that tell us of another such event as the Exodus, however, on a greater scale. One example is found in Isaiah 11. It says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of Egypt. In other words, it's saying there's going to be another exodus, except it's going to be greater than the previous one. Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Again, the point is, the Lord will do it. There will be no doubt that he does it. There's no guesswork. And it's going to be even greater than the previous exodus. So now, again, going back to the eagle's wings concept, we see it in Exodus 19. We also see it in Revelation 12. But now, notice what Isaiah has to say in chapter 40. They that wait, that word is kava, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Interesting. Personally, I believe that this, again, alludes to Exodus 19, and consequently alludes to Revelation chapter 12. But the key word here is wait. The word kava, the root word, is somewhat intricate. It's translated as to wait or to tarry, but the idea is of something twisted or stretched. In other words, the waiting is causing you to be stretched, to be strained, You're having to endure, but this endurance or this challenge to endure is causing you to yearn, to look patiently, to look intently, to be very hopeful for something. And so that idea is expressed in what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. He says, we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he hope for? But if we hope for what we don't see, then with patience we wait for it. Wait 
for it. Those that wait upon the Lord. So this convinces me that we should be content to wait on his timing for all things. Again, the context here is those who are anticipating leaving, going into the wilderness, fleeing into the wilderness. I might add here that Israel didn't flee into the wilderness per se. When they left Egypt, they were in orderly ranks. They marched out of Egypt in an orderly fashion while all of Egypt watched. It was not done under the cover of darkness. So he bore them unto himself upon eagles' wings. The woman flees into the wilderness upon the wings of a great eagle. And those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up as on wings of eagles. Again, all of this convinces me that we should be content to wait on his timing for all things. Now, this word kava, translated wait, also means to collect. It means to gather in order to act for a common purpose. And we see it used in Genesis chapter 1 when the seas are being called to gather together. You see, we will be gathered to him if we have been patiently waiting on him, yearning for him and his voice. And so in Hosea 2, he lures her. He lures her into the wilderness. And who are they? My belief, those who endure to the end, according to Matthew 24. So now moving on to verse 7, Moses called the elders of the people and told them the words that the Lord had commanded. And so he came from the mountain and he told the elders, who then in turn told the people. And that's how all the people heard what God was saying, then giving them the chance to accept what God was saying or to reject it. And so this kind of alludes to the fact that mysteries are not given to a select class of people. And then the poor, unintelligent mass of people are then left in the dark. That's not the way God works. It's not given to just a a select group of people. It's given to the young. It's given to the old. It's given to the rich. It's given to the poor. All the people heard what the Lord had said. And then in verse 8, the people said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And these were the words that were reported back to God by Moses. Now, the people's response is going to be very important for many reasons. And some of those reasons will not become obvious until we get into the next Torah portion, which is Mishpatim. But now continuing on, we're in verse 9 now. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So now, the primary purpose, it would seem, for God descending upon the mountain was so that the people might hear. They would hear directly from God and not through a messenger or an intermediary. Now, later, they're going to ask Moses to petition God not to speak to them directly. But for now, that's exactly what he's going to do, because he's going to impress upon them the significance of their calling. 
He is going to make sure they understand there are witnesses to all these things. They witnessed the plagues as well. Now they're going to witness this. So, again, it was to impress upon them that you're getting this firsthand, not through somebody else, but you're getting it firsthand. But also, it was going to impress upon them the importance of, in the future, believing Moses, and not just for a few days, but forever. Because God has always validated or verified those who are his servants in the sight of all the people. And that word forever strongly implies that the Torah was not going to change. Because it always has been, it always will be. The Lord doesn't change, according to Malachi 3. Therefore, his word doesn't change. And thus, there would be no amendments. There are not going to be any deletions. The Torah is eternal. And by the way, Yeshua made it clear that this remained true in his day, and he underscored the eternal nature of the Torah because he said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so then considering that heaven and earth don't pass away, have not passed away, that means that no part of the Torah, anything that was given to Moses, none of it has been invalidated. This is incredibly important to note because the Rambam, Maimonides, he taught that complete faith in what was given to Moses is one of the principles of Judaism. And even if a prophet were to come and to perform miracles establishing his credibility, were he to contradict or denounce Moses, he would have to be regarded as a false prophet and therefore subject to death. And so here's why we bring that out. Maybe Maimonides said that in an attempt to disqualify Yeshua from being Messiah based on the fact that from Maimonides' perspective, the followers of Yeshua were abandoning or not even considering obedience to Torah. But Yeshua didn't do what Maimonides said to be on the lookout for. To the contrary, Yeshua validated what Moses wrote and said. He didn't come to do away with those things. However, he said, I come to make it full of meaning. So again, Maimonides says if a person comes and read between the lines, he's probably hinting at Yeshua, and not just Yeshua, but in general, but certainly would include Yeshua into this from his point of view. He may come, he may perform all these great miracles and say that he's a prophet or even the Messiah, but if he turns people away from the Torah, then he's false prophet and subject to death. Again, unfortunately, many of Yeshua's followers have abandoned or rejected the idea that we are to obey the Torah, but Yeshua didn't. Now, going on, we see that the Creator comes in a thick or dark cloud, and that, here on Mount Sinai anyway, is where His presence seems to reside. This is validated further later on in this Torah portion in in chapter 20. It says that in verse 21 that Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So why the thick darkness? Well, first of all, I believe it's to conceal his presence so that the people would not be consumed. 
because you can't see God and live, right? But it's also tied to the concept of God being concealed. Psalm 18, verse 11, he made darkness, and that term there is choshech, his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And this word choshech that's translated here as darkness it's the same Hebrew word that's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the darkness that was upon the face of the deep. And so then, the Creator dwells in darkness. According to this verse in Psalm 18, it is His canopy, it is His tent. This is a concept that we developed in the Torah portion on Brashit. So we're not going to really elaborate on, elaborate on it here. But nonetheless, He comes in this thick darkness. And in verse 10, Moses is told, sanctify them today and tomorrow because they had to prepare themselves to meet God. In fact, they had two full days to prepare before his appearance on the third day. Now, among other things, this hints at the two millennial days that are spoken of by Hosea in chapter 6 since the Messiah's day. Because in verse 2 of chapter 6, the prophet says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. Second Peter, he talks about the fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so since the time of the Messiah, it's been 2000 years or two days. What has that two days been spent doing? Well, hopefully the body preparing herself to meet him. Now to sanctify themselves refers to avoiding any spiritual contamination, tumah in Hebrew, as it was or would later be in the sanctuary. And so they were to abstain from having relations with their wives, for instance. They were to wash their garments, which was an outward sign of something that was supposed to be going on internally. And so, again, this is all in preparation of meeting God, who is going to come down on the mountain on the third day. This reminds us of other events that have happened as people prepared to go up to meet God. For instance, in Genesis chapter 35, Jacob commanded all that were with him to change their clothes before going to Bethel. Here's what it says. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So then, before ascending the mountain where God's presence resides, there would be this washing. They would immerse themselves in a mikveh. There was the changing of garments. All of that seems to be a prerequisite. And that's important, I believe, because if you think back, where did garments originate from? At least as far as we know in Scripture, why were they worn in the first place? Well, it all goes back to Adam's fall. Also consider what Zechariah has to say in the vision of the high priest in chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. Again, before he goes to meet the Creator, so to speak, 
he has to have a change of garments. He has to wash his clothes. He has to prepare himself. And so all these things collectively reminds us that in anticipation of meeting the king, we as his bride must make ourselves ready, not the other way around. Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So going back now to Exodus 19, in verse 11, Israel is told to be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down. Now again, this is a thing that runs throughout Scripture. For years I've taught about this concept of the third day. Because the third day saw the concealed seed of the creation account being brought forth as grass and vegetation on the third day, which in turn, hence at the Messiah, who is that good seed, he's the grain of wheat that goes into the ground and dies, but then is raised again on the third day. And this concept also hints at the return of the Messiah on the prophetic third day, which Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Which, if you consider, is similar to what Israel experienced in Exodus 19, when the Lord would come down with the sound of the shofar, they would hear all these voices, etc. Now, verse 12, set bounds unto the people. In other words, there were limits established where the people could go, but beyond that, they were not to go. Because God's presence atop Mount Sinai would make the mountain to be, more or less, a temporary sanctuary. And so, like the sanctuary, at certain points, people were allowed to go no further because they were contaminated. And it's done not because God is cruel, but because God was holy. And nothing profane or unclean would be allowed to pollute that holiness. So then we could say that later on the sanctuary is going to serve as a reminder of the Mount Sinai experience, its significance. The foot of the mountain where the people were gathered corresponded to the courtyard gate. The mountain itself would correspond to the interior of the courtyard. The cloud where Moses stood corresponded to the holy place. And then the thick cloud that's described for us would correspond to the Holy of Holies. So the mountain was considered holy at that time only, though, because that's the only time the presence of the Creator was there. And so when the shofar sounded long, that was the people's indication that they were permitted on the mountain at that point, because that would be the signal that the presence had left the mountain. So verse 14 and 15, it says that Moses went to the people and then he gave them all the instructions that had just been given him. And so now we actually come to the time when God does come down on the mountain in verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings. And that term there is kolot. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and the sound of the trumpet. And that word there is shofar. 
And the sound of the trumpet or the shofar was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, except for the rain, all of this sounds like a thunderstorm of immense proportions, including an earthquake. So the cloud was there. It was thick. It was dense, literally heavy. By the way, compare that to 1 Kings 19 and Elijah's experience at Mount Horeb. Just kind of interesting. Now, the term thunderings, as I told you, is the Hebrew word kolot, which literally means voices. And voices is plural, suggesting more than one. In Revelation chapter 6, there are four living creatures that have voices like thunder. There are the seven thunders that utter their voice in Revelation chapter 10. And then, of course, God's voice is often considered to be as thunder. We can see an example of this in Revelation 14 and in John chapter 12. In fact, in John 12, it says, Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is God speaking. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Yeshua answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And so the point is that the word thunderings here in Exodus 19, literally voices, might mean both. That to many it sounded like thunder, but others were able to discern voices. Interesting. We also see that this spectacle, thunderings, lightnings, etc., is present in the heavenly throne room. In Revelation 4, it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Which then brings us to conclude that in reality, what's going on here in Mount Sinai, and Judaism supports this idea, by the way, that God's throne came down upon Mount Sinai. That is the Jewish belief. In fact, his throne is called the Merkaba, or the chariot that at times God flies upon his chariot, his Merkabah, which is synonymous with his throne. And that is why then he is concealed in a thick, dense, and dark cloud. Because if he were not, it would be too overwhelming in a sight and people would be consumed. The writer of Hebrews confirms this frightening aspect of what's going on here in Mount Sinai when he says in chapter 12, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. And of course, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that in the future, the world is going to experience something more than what's described for us in Exodus 19. Because he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. I believe Yeshua alludes to the same thing in Luke 21 when he says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, 
men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so then, the shaking of Sinai is concurrent with God's arrival on the mountain, which is, of course, announced by the sounding of the shofar, because the shofar is sounded to announce the freedom of a slave on Yom Kippur in Leviticus chapter 25. And so at Sinai, Israel is being called to be his people, which is accentuating the fact that they have been delivered from the bondage and the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. So the shofar was used to both signal God's arrival and it was to announce their liberation from Egyptian bondage. Throughout the scripture, the shofar is used to signal or to accompany important events like a coronation. And so Sinai, it is understood that God's kingdom was being announced by the sound of the shofar. And it was emblematic of him being coronated, so to speak, as their king. Now, the question that I've often had is who was blowing the shofar? Because the people weren't, because they were shaking in their sandals. Apparently Moses wasn't, so who was? And by the way, it literally says the voice of the shofar, signifying that the shofar or the ram's horn has a voice. And I believe that ultimately that voice is the voice of innocent blood because an innocent ram has to surrender its life so that we can have the shofar. Now, getting back, though, to the question, who blew the shofar? Tradition says that the horn or the shofar that was blown in Exodus 19 is actually the left horn of the ram that Abraham sacrificed in Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah, the ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns, which died in the stead of Isaac. So then they believe Exodus 19, the left horn was what was sounded, but the right horn has to be sounded as well. And so that same tradition states that the right horn is going to be blown at the coming of the Messiah or at the time of redemption. And who's going to blow that horn? Well, they believe the Lord himself will. So in Zechariah 9, it says, Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet, that is the shofar, and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. In the New Testament, we see some corroboration of the shofar sounding at the time of redemption, because it says in Matthew 24, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So then, the sounding of the shofar here is linked to the idea of the sounding of the shofar at the redemption. And again, it says the voice of the shofar. And so that is to, I believe, imply that the voice of the shofar is synonymous with the voice of God. It's the word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so then, did God blow the shofar announcing his arrival there on Mount Sinai? Well, 
apparently God's going to blow the shofar at Israel's redemption. So it would seem logical to me to think that God, in fact, did blow the shofar in Exodus 19, and he came down upon the mountain in the morning, and thus Israel awoke to a very ominous, awesome sight. It says that they drew near to the mountain where he was initially. Of course, we are to draw near to where he is as well. But then the people trembled, literally shuddered, shook, is the connotation that goes along with this word, at the sights and the sounds of his coming. Because it says in verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, hakivshan is the term. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So here in these verses, we're again reminded that the top of Mount Sinai became God's throne on earth. If you think back to Isaiah's vision of God's throne, it describes it as being filled with smoke. Also, take note of the fact that Moses was shown the pattern for the tabernacle and all the furnishings, and the tabernacle is basically going to be where God dwells on earth, but he was shown the pattern for all these things in the mountain, which would then indicate that the original was in the mountain when God descended in fire. Now, also notice this that the Lord descended and Moses ascended. Why do I bring that out? Because it reminds us of what we read a little bit ago, 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, but what are his people going to do at the sounding of the shofar? Those who are dead in Messiah will be caught up first, and then those who are alive and remain will what? Like Moses, ascend. We see that God's appearance here was in fire and that the smoke resembled that of what a furnace would produce. The Hebrew word for furnace is kavash, meaning to subdue or to subject forcibly, which is kind of an interesting concept to give us the word for furnace because it also carries with it the idea of mastering something or you forcibly transform something. So then, why is it used to give us the word furnace? Because in a furnace, materials disintegrate. Whatever ore you're putting in there, when the fire is hot enough, whatever it was, it disintegrates. So if you consider that the Lord appeared in his glory, but the smoke of Sinai is likened unto a furnace, and again, a furnace is where physical materials disintegrate because of the heat, this would get tied to the concept, as far as I'm concerned anyway, that no flesh shall glory in his presence. Flesh disintegrates in his presence. Because you see, our God, according to Hebrews 12, is a consuming fire. Psalm 97 says this, His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Now, verse 19, when Moses called out, the Lord answered him by voice, that is, loud enough to be heard over the sound of the shofar. Some people believe that this is what's recorded for us in verses 21 through 24, not the Ten Commandments. 
Others believe that this response was the first two of the Ten Commandments, those being, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and you're to have no other gods before me, etc. And then, of course, after those two, it's believed that the remainder was related to Moses privately, and then he gave them to Israel. I wasn't there, so I can't say with any certainty which view is correct, but we know that he answered Moses by a voice. And then in verse 21, Moses is told to remind the people not to go past the boundaries in some attempt to gaze upon the Lord, because death would be the result, not as a retaliation, but because no flesh glories in his presence. If you put something in a furnace, it's going to disintegrate. It's just the way it is. And so as a warning for their best interests, remind them, do not go past the boundaries to try to gaze upon the Lord. So again, if you throw an object into a burning furnace and you don't expect it to be disintegrated, you're going to be sadly surprised. So in that furnace, in that heat, it can't retain its status. It will dissolve. And likewise, those who are contaminated and polluted just to go into the presence of the Creator, they're going to be consumed. That's what happened when Nadav and Nevihu offered strange fire. A fire went out from the Lord and they were consumed. Not because God is mean and tyrannical and cruel, but because He's holy. So in verse 22 it says, Let the priests that come near the Lord sanctify themselves, purify themselves, lest they die. Again, these priests predate the Levitical order and the sons of Aaron. These, again, were the firstborn of Israel's males that had been sanctified to the Lord in Exodus chapter 13. Because remember, at the beginning of this chapter, we saw that all Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. And so then, concluding this chapter in verse 24, we are told that only Moses and Aaron were permitted to come up the mountain. And so the stage is set for God to speak directly to the people in his own voice, what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, in chapter 20 of Exodus, we continue with our Torah portion commentary on Yitro. This chapter is going to give us the Ten Commandments, the so-called Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, literally, as it's known in Hebrew, Esrat Hadivrot, the Ten Words, or the Ten Utterances. It's also called the Decalogue, and that comes from the Greek term deca, which means ten, and logos, which is translated word. And so, again, ten commandments, ten commands, ten sayings, ten utterances, ten words. All these things are to refer to these laws that were given to us at Mount Sinai, because these ten words are fundamental to our faith. And this is, in fact, why God spoke them directly to the people. Now, Rashid Rambam, who is also known as Nachmanides, believed that the people heard all ten of the commandments, but the first two came directly from God, but the remaining eight were by the mouth of Moses. Again, that's one of those things. I wasn't there, so I can't say one way or the other. But we do know that God spoke and the people heard. Now, you consider the awesome display by which these words were delivered to Israel and to all of mankind, for that matter. And it emphasizes, once again, Israel's role as a kingdom of priests. To receive these words with this dramatic demonstration, to impress upon them the significance of these words and the significance of their calling, and that is to present these instructions to all of mankind. How do they present them? 
Well, first of all, they need to live by them. That's really the best way to evangelize, if we can use that word, to live it. And so these 10 commands are given to Israel directly and are considered to be the basic outline or, for lack of a better word, headings for all human behavior. Because all the other commandments that we see throughout the Torah are in some way going to be associated with or come under one of these 10 categories or sayings. These 10 commandments are binding on all mankind, by the way. Again, they were given to Israel, but so that Israel would live them before and present them to the nations. Israel's mandate is to be a light to the nations. And so, again, they're binding on all of mankind. And that would include the Sabbath, by the way. These are the laws for the entire world. And if you look through the entire world, in synagogues and in churches, and in some cases on government buildings, you will see these Ten Commandments. Now, obviously, today, public display of these commandments in so-called a federal context or a government context is coming under fire. But nonetheless, we see that for millennia, mankind has looked upon these instructions as being for all mankind. But then why is it under fire now? Well, because... It's an attempt to deny any existence of God, because if you remove the existence of a supreme being, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you remove the need for any of his rules, and then man is left to do whatever he wants to do. Perhaps that's why we see initially these things were engraved in stone, but that better suited for mankind if they are written on his heart. Now, the natural categorization of these duties falls into two sections. That is, the first tablet is going to contain man's duties toward God, the first five commandments, and then the second tablet is going to contain man's duties toward his fellow man, the last five. That also, as far as I'm concerned, demonstrates that all of the Torah and the prophets hangs upon two commands, as Yeshua told us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, What does the first tablet contain? Those things that are man's duties toward God, to love him with all of our heart, soul, and strength. And then the second commandment Yeshua told us, upon which the Torah and the prophet hang, love your neighbor as yourself. What does the second tablet contain? Man's duties toward his fellow man. And so that's why Yeshua says, on these two points hang, that is not remove, but hang all of the Torah and the prophets. And so in this, we see how these are indeed headings or categories. Everything in the Torah of the Prophets is going to find its way back to the concept of be faithful in your duties to God, be faithful in your duties to your fellow man. So as we begin chapter 20, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me 
and keep my commandments. So these verses contain the two commands that it is believed that Israel heard directly from the mouth of the Almighty. And of course, after this, so says the tradition, coupled with the scripture, they became afraid. Then they asked Moses to convey everything else to them. Now, there are some beliefs that argued that Israel heard all 10 directly from God. But again, I don't know that we can be conclusive about that. But now, I want you to notice, though, that unlike in Christianity, the first commandment here, and this is what's accepted by Judaism, is I am the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So then the first command is to believe in his eternal existence and his absolute authority. He's God. End of story. Furthermore, we see in this commandment that he's not an it. He's not Mother Nature. He's not a higher consciousness. He is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He is very personal, and he emphasizes that, by the way, to every generation that he is your God. Now, he gives his name here, Yudhevavhe, which combines the verb haya to be. His name is the verb to be, haya, but it's in the past tense, it's in the present tense, and it's in the future tense. So he was the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and in future generations, he's going to be their God as well. So again, to every generation, he is God. Here's the way the psalmist puts it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he is the God, according to what he says in verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, indicating, among other things, that his interaction with his creation did not stop when he rested on the seventh day. His power and his influence is not limited to nature, but it's also encompassing history and the destinies of men. And since we can't see him visibly, we see him by his action in earthly affairs. For instance, the story of Esther. His name is not mentioned in the entirety of the book, and so we don't see him per se. But yet if we examine what happens in the story, we see him orchestrating history. And so it is in all generations. So what he tells Israel is, yeah, I'm the God that created the heavens and the earth. I'm the one that called your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm the God who presently is delivering you from Egypt and from your bondage. And this event unfolded, of course, on a national scale in Egypt. But he's also the God that deals with you on a personal and individual level. He will intervene in your life as a person, just like he intervenes in the life of the nation. And so then, in appreciation for my deliverance as an individual and as a nation, at his hand, I should be motivated to pledge to him my eternal loyalty. Because no other God 
could deliver me from the bondage of Egypt. No one else could deliver me from the bondage of sin. And that is indicating that he alone is God. And so then this is the essence of the first command. I am the Lord, your God. We could argue that without the ability to deliver us in a personal sense or in an individual basis, or if you will, a national basis, if he's not able to do that, then one could argue that he's not the one that created the universe, that the universe just kind of came about by accident. And so then it makes you wonder that those that argue against his existence and for evolution and these kinds of things makes you wonder if they've never, ever had a personal experience with him. Because how could one who had experienced the release from Egypt, how could they deny his existence? And furthermore, those that experienced the manifestation at Sinai, how could they deny that there was only one God, and it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So then this first command, including the declaration, who brought you out of the house of bondage, is going to be the basis for all the other commands. For instance, the first and great command is the love of the Lord your God with all of your heart. And so then be careful how you treat others because you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember, I'm the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so, again, the first command sets the stage for all the other commands. To abide by this first commandment is to acknowledge his sovereignty and then to take upon us the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is what we are to seek before all others, according to what Yeshua told us in Matthew 6. Now, in verses 3 through 6, it gives us the details of the second commandment, which is the prohibition against other gods and idols. First of all, if the Lord is your God, one should not look to other gods or to idols. Secondly, there are no other gods. There is none beside me, he says in Isaiah 45. And so this command is a kind of a follow-up or a natural consequence to the first one. I'm the Lord your God, therefore you shouldn't have other gods. This command encompasses four different injunctions. Number one, it is forbidden to believe in idols. And so consequently, it would be forbidden to make them or to possess them. It would be forbidden to employ godly methods in the worship of these other non-existent gods. And then it would be forbidden to worship them in means which are unique to that idol, following the ways of the nations. So verse 3, he says, you shall have no other gods before me, literally no other gods to my face or no other gods in my face. To me, that's as if he is saying to us, look, when you know something offends me, don't you dare just rub my nose in it. You wouldn't like that. Don't do that to me either. Likewise, it would be similar to having a spouse but then going out and finding a lover and then bringing that lover and parading her in front of your spouse. It's like defying a king to his face, which is an act of treason. And so he's saying, don't do that. And you would have to ask, why would you want to do that? And so, in short, nothing or no one is to receive worship that is due only to him, whether it be angels whether it be saintly men or saintly women, they are not supposed to receive worship. That is exclusive to the Creator. Now, people should show respect 
to a king's or a president's emissaries or intermediaries. However, those people do not hold the office of king or president, and so you're not going to treat them the same way you would that president or king. So likewise, while it is appropriate to respect, honor God's emissaries, his representatives, whether they be angels, whether they be saintly men or women, it is not appropriate to put them on the level where they are venerated or they are prayed to. And that is going to include heavenly bodies, whether they be stars or angels or these magnanimous personalities. None of them are to be worshipped. This commandment is also said to allude to the prohibition against witchcraft and superstition which would include things such as chance. You know, you've heard the expression, lady luck, luck be a lady tonight. Well, it is believed that this prohibition would encompass things like that. Now, he elaborates a bit more in verse 4. He says, no graven image, and that is to apply to foreign gods and their perceived likeness. But that command also forbids the worship of the one God in the wrong way. The God of Israel is not to be made to be an image that human hands can fashion. Of course, this is exactly what happened, I believe anyway, with the golden calf. And here's why you shouldn't do that. Verse 5, I am a jealous God. That Hebrew word jealous is kana, and it means it's envious to protect its ownership. It's a word that demands exclusive rights. And by the way, it only uses this word to describe the Creator or in connection to the Creator in regard to idols because that would be like a husband seeing his wife going out and committing adultery and then putting it in his face, so to speak, doing it very blatantly and obviously. And so he's that jealous husband. Now, ancient Gentile nations and even some modern Gentile nations believed in the more gods, the better. Because their belief was if the pantheon of the people was richer, more diverse, then the nation would be greater. The nation would be enriched because of it. In short, we could argue then that their gods, that is of the nations, were not jealous. And thus the people would be tolerant of one another. They were willing to coexist with other philosophies, other lifestyles, regardless, mind you, of the depravity that that may bring with it. Now, footnote to this is the word kana, which is translated jealous, is phonetically related to the word kana, which means to acquire. And that is the root of the word kain, or the name kain, or as we know it, Cain. Just kind of an interesting sidebar there. Now, verse 5, he says that this talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Now, is that just? What does it mean when he says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children? I think the first thing we need to do is compare this to other scriptures. Deuteronomy 24. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18. Why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. 
The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be put upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. And so then, what can we deduce from all this? First of all, I think it's clear. Innocent children are not punished by God because of their guilty fathers. There is, however, a moral interdependence between parents and their children. In other words, a father's bad example often corrupts those who come after him, his children and his grandchildren. And when sins are repeated over time, they are legitimized by that family or that clan or even culture at large as a way of life. And People just do it because that's the way it was always done. And so then a new set of values is established to accommodate the bad behavior. So perhaps that's what he's trying to get across here when he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Another translation of this same phrase is remembering the sins of the father unto the children. Because God remembers the sins of the fathers when he's about to punish the children. Because he takes into account the evil environment and the influence that they were subjected to, which would then hint that he would temper his justice with mercy. And he does this, by the way, under the third and the fourth generation. But either way we look at it, it seems that there are severe limits on his desire to visit the sinful. Because those who hate him are measured in three and four generations. However, on the other hand, He extends mercy to those that love him unto the thousandth generation, which is to say that his merciful attributes far outweigh his attributes of judgment. Those who are shown great mercy are those that love him and his commandments. And this love, of course, exhibits the right attitude toward the Creator. Again, the first and great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. Yeshua said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then later on in Revelation 12, the remnant of the woman's seed keep his commands and they have the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. So those people can expect mercy unto the thousandth generation, which is just an idiomatic way of saying for all time. Now, a footnote to this. Nowhere does it say his mercy is extended to those who are perfect doesn't say that. Because if they were perfect, then there would be no need for mercy. Because, as we're told, there is none righteous, not one. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Now, continuing on, we get to commandment number three, which says in verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that term vain is lashav. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Now, this word that we just mentioned that is translated vain or in vain, it means lacking value or content. In other words, used flippantly. It would also include using the name for vain purposes, that is to say, for falsehood. People who try to invoke God's name in an effort to convince someone of something that isn't true. People say things like, God is my witness, but they'll say things like that 
to convince you that what is actually untrue is in fact true. So that is an example, or those are examples of what this commandment is against. To use it without considering its sanctity is another aspect of it. In other words, to make it commonplace, just to kind of use it all the time. And so that the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, comes true. So all of these aspects and perspectives of this commandment against using the name of the Lord in vain, I believe is all accurate. Now, Jewish commentary says that one is only to swear by God's name when they are fully convinced of the truthfulness of what they're saying. But here's what Yeshua had to say on the matter. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Therefore, it would seem, there should never be a need for a believer to invoke the name of God in an effort to lend credence to something that they're saying. By the way, the Essenes held to a similar belief, and according to the Talmud, they wrote this, He who cannot be believed without swearing is already condemned. Let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. So again, that's one aspect of this command. Another is, we've already mentioned it, but uttering his name should not become commonplace or so commonplace that it just becomes empty. And without delving too far into this, personally, I believe that there are those that in their attempt to correctly pronounce the name Yudhevavheg, whether they believe it's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yehovah, Yehovah, what have you, that some are using it so often and so frequently that it is in some circles and contexts becoming commonplace. And might it be that we're at the threshold here, we're in danger potentially of doing exactly what we set out not to do, and that is profaning his name. So again, it shouldn't be, at least according to Hebraic thought, it shouldn't be used so commonplace that it becomes empty. It shouldn't be used to convince others of your devotion and your righteousness. It should be set apart and sacred. Because again, remember, familiarity does breed contempt. Now, as we continue with the next commandment, the fourth one, this one is the one that gets a lot of attention. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now first of all, we are to remember that he is the creator by observing the Shabbat because it is a sign between the Creator and His people. Therefore, to reject the sanctity of Shabbat is to call into question who the Creator actually is. This word remember 
in Hebrew zachor, it means more than just to call to mind. I forgot something and now I need to call it to mind, even though it can mean that as well. But it is more than that, which would suggest perhaps that the institution of Shabbat may have already been well known among the Israelites. Because again, we've already stated this, the Torah doesn't begin at Sinai. The Torah has always been. And so remember, might suggest that they were to keep this in mind, something that they were already familiar with. Also, it might suggest that they were to keep the Shabbat in mind as they're going through the day-in, day-out routine of the week. In other words, remember it to begin the process of preparing for it and all that that entails, which is, of course, to restrain from work. But perhaps the greater message in the Shabbat, to cease and desist, is beyond just your work. Perhaps Shabbat is to teach us to restrain ourselves from our own will in subjection and submission to the Creator's will, which is then to acknowledge that He is the Creator. He is the Lord our God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, the other word that is used in conjunction with the commandment of Shabbat is the word observe, and that's the word we find in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says, observe or keep, the Hebrew word is shamor, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. And this root word here is shamar, literally to guard. And so this is a command to refrain from any activity that would diminish the sanctity or the holiness of the Shabbat. And so we have to guard against those things that would encroach upon the Shabbat to make it like any other day. For instance... In our house, we don't answer the telephone. We abstain from the television, or you know, things that would suggest that this is just like any other day. Because for it to serve its intended purpose, those everyday, mundane, routine activities have to come to an end, or else it just becomes like any other day. So if we were to allow typical workday activities to continue into the Shabbat, then that would profane the sanctity of the Shabbat. So we have to guard. That was the point. We have to guard against those things because those things that we do so naturally and so instinctively are very subtle in how they find their way into the Shabbat. So we have to be on guard, in other words. Now, the scripture does not provide an exhaustive list of things that are prohibited on Shabbat. It does mention certain things, some of them incidentally. For instance, working in the field, buying and selling, traveling great distances, cooking and kindling a fire. But again, no exhaustive list of this is okay, that's not okay, you can do this, but don't do that. And so then, the lack of a list suggests this, at least to me, that Number one, over the course of time, generations, millennia even, these prohibited activities would be very different. The things that Moses' generation would have not done on Shabbat will be very similar to some of the things that we're not supposed to do on Shabbat, but some of the things that in our day and time we could do that they didn't know about 
might also be prohibited as well. In other words, they didn't have internet to buy things online. They would have had to go out into the markets. We don't have to do that. We can go to the market and never leave our house. So again, perhaps the fact that there is no list is indicative of the fact that God knew that in time that the dynamics would shift a little bit. The principle would not change because he doesn't change. But some of the particulars of what we might be able to do and not do would. So again, Moses and those guys wouldn't have been able to buy online. We can. So then, what am I getting at? Shopping online might be one of those things that God doesn't want us to do on Shabbat. So no list. Leaving it to a situation where the believer has to be truly reliant on the spirit of truth to teach them truth, to teach them what is permissible and what we should refrain from. In other words, I believe he left it vague and ambiguous on purpose so that we would be forced to, A, have a relationship with him, and B, rely upon his spirit to teach us these things. Now, the Mishnah, rabbinical commentary, of course, provides 39 categories of prohibitions under which are listed all these activities that are considered to be unlawful on Shabbat. However, it would seem Yeshua didn't necessarily agree with these man-made restrictions. Let me read to you from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Yeshua went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Shabbat. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with them? how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. And then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And so what is the point? Well, Yeshua makes it very clear that, number one, he doesn't necessarily agree with the traditions of men and their do's and their don'ts. Number two, he makes it clear that the commandments of God promote life and well-being. They are not intended to impede life. The only thing that the commandments are intended to impede is the evil inclinations of mankind. That's what it impedes. And so he quoted, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In keeping his commandments, he doesn't want us to become 
encumbered and tethered and chained by the man-made interpretations of these laws. He wants us to have a heart for God. And if we have a heart for God, then we will begin to discern the weightier matters of these things. That is not to say that we don't have the obligation to keep God's instructions. It's just to say that, as I said earlier, that number one, we need to be in a relationship with him and to be guided by his spirit. And if we're there, then he'll teach us how to walk these things out. And then when we come into situations where it's like David, his men are starving and hungry. But he knows it's unlawful to eat the showbread because he's not a priest. And yet he goes in and uses the showbread to feed his men and is considered guiltless. You see, when you understand the weightier matters and the weightier matter is that God wants to promote life, not death. Then you begin to see what Yeshua meant by those words, because at the very heart of the Torah, it says this in Leviticus 18, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So Messiah was making it very clear that all of God's commandments, in in this specific case, the Shabbat, it's about life. Because if you've got a sheep in the ditch, you're going to tell me you're going to let it die because it's the Sabbath? No. You go pull the animal out of the ditch. And if you would do that for an animal, how much more so would you do for a man? Or should you do for a man, even if you have to do it on the Sabbath. Now, also contained in this commandment is the instruction to work. You're supposed to work six days. Working those six days is just as important as resting on the Sabbath. Albeit, the Sabbath day is blessed and set apart as holy, and comparatively speaking, the six days are common and profane, nonetheless, those are the days that are allotted for man to work. And so again, it's just as important to work on those six days as it is to rest on the seventh because devotion to God does not free one from the obligation to work. Idleness leads to evil thought, to evil deeds, and thus we have the old saying that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I believe that a big part of modern culture's problem is having too much idle time, too many luxuries. Paul says that if one doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. He says that those who don't provide for their own household are worse than an infidel. So we are commanded to work. Still, the proper balance is to complete our work in six days and then rest on the seventh. Of course, that's a little bit of an irony because if you're like me, work is never completed in six days. It just simply stops on Shabbat. And I have to be content to leave what's remaining to be done to be taken up after Shabbat. And I believe that's always been and will always be. But when we cease and desist from that work, we have to be confident that if we are obedient, the Creator is going to provide for us on Shabbat. Now, here's a footnote that I ran across that I found to be of interest. The First French Republic rejected the notion of one day of rest in seven. And so they thought better and figured they were smarter, and so they sanctioned one rest day in ten. The bottom line, it was a complete and utter disaster. It was a failure. So God knows what he's doing. Now, the head of the household 
is responsible to observe this command and to see to it that all who are in his house, including servants, work animals, are to rest from their labor as well, which hints that the Creator is considerate for those other than those that are considered to be a master. Furthermore, this infers that every home is to become a little universe, so to speak, or a sanctuary of its own, because the master of the house, the father, the husband, is to follow the example of his master in heaven and to, in his little sanctuary, in his little universe, ordain that there be this day of rest from everyone's labor. And so then, in observance of Shabbat, we acknowledge that the God of Israel is the Creator, and He's the one that ordained that there be six days of labor, and that was enough. And so then He rested. There are many who, if they weren't made to do so, would continue to work without ceasing. And I'll have to confess to you, I'm one of those. And so the Shabbat is an instruction, a commandment that, Bill, it's enough. Everything that's still remaining to be done, it will have to wait until after Shabbat. And again, I, you, we have to be content with the fact that if we obey him in this commandment, that he will sustain us through the Shabbat. He will take care of us. So this command to observe the Shabbat is apparently not only to acknowledge that he is our creator and he is our master, but it's also perhaps in our best interest. It's probably not healthy to work without any kind of rest. It's probably not even productive, but may in fact be counterproductive. And and so then we could see that this is one of the reasons that God blessed the Sabbath day. This is one of the reasons that he gave the people a double portion of manna on the sixth day, on Friday, because he was demonstrating to them that if you keep my command, I will sustain you during that seventh day. You won't have to worry about being productive in the sense that you seek to be productive on those other six days. They're going out on the sixth day to gather manna and they get this double portion. So he sanctified the Sabbath. He set it apart. He blessed it so that they wouldn't have to gather You see, our prosperity doesn't come by our talents. It doesn't come by our gifts or our intelligence or our diligence to work. God gives us these tools, but he ultimately is the provider of all things. And much more so when we walk in obedience to him. And so he didn't give them a double portion on the sixth day so that they would have twice as much to eat on the sixth day. He gave them a double portion on the sixth day so that they would be provided for on the seventh. And now we come to the next commandment, the fifth commandment, which says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So rabbinical commentary points out that the first tablet, which is the first five commandments, contains the commandments that address man's relationship with God. And so then... Considering that, it is striking that the fifth commandment on this first tablet is the command to honor our parents. In other words, it's included among those that speak of our duty to God himself. And so then, duty to one's parents stands 
likewise next to the duties toward God himself. So then our responsibility to honor our parents should not be based solely on emotion or sentiment, but it should be viewed as part of our obligation toward God himself. Because in part, this obligation to honor our parents is to guarantee the succession of the first four commandments. I'm the Lord your God, no other graven images, no other idols, etc. Don't take my name in vain and keep the Sabbath day. If one's parents teaches him to do those things and he honors his parents, he will pass on to his children and their children what he was taught by his parents. So I hope that makes sense. Again, that's why we believe it's tied to these duties to God because keeping this fifth one guarantees the keeping of the first four which then in turn would infer that the parents have the obligation to teach the children how to responsibly and correctly honor God and worship God. So we could read into this that maybe honoring one's parents is not necessarily agreeing with everything they say or do, but honoring one's parents is to honor what they teach you, assuming That is what is true and what is good and what is honorable and right in the eyes of God. The scripture does not suggest that we are to obey a parent's instruction that would require us to break God's commandments. In other words, if a parent tells you to go rob a bank, well, no, we don't do that. So again, that kind of underscores the idea that honoring one's parents is more than just, I'm going to do whatever they say, because if they tell you to do something that breaks God's commands... You're not supposed to do that. So then, Scripture doesn't suggest that we are to obey a parent's instruction if that instruction would demand that we break God's instruction. We're told that we are to obey those that are in authority, but not when they compel us to disobey God. An example would be the three Hebrews who are subject to Nebuchadnezzar, but who in Daniel 3 refused to bow to the image of gold on the plain of Dura, even though that was the law, even though that's what the authorities were commanding them to do. Did they dishonor Nebuchadnezzar? No, to the contrary. They showed great honor to the man. They were very respectful to the man, but more than him, they honored God. So this command is not telling us to abide by unlawful instruction from our parents. But it does call upon us to respect our parents, not necessarily to agree with them. In fact, what did God compel Abram to do in Genesis 12? Let's read it. Now the Lord had said to Avram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So then, Could it be argued, given this commandment here from God, that had Abram remained in Terah's house, could it be argued that under those circumstances that he would have been able to fulfill God's plan for his life? In other words, Abram couldn't stay in Terah's house and become what God had called him to be. He had to leave his father's house, meaning that Abram couldn't live in agreement with Terah. However, there is absolutely nothing to suggest that Avram was denigrating his father, scoffing at him, ridiculing him, 
acting in a hateful manner toward him. That's not indicated either. So it is entirely possible when in situations where parents are teaching what is unlawful in God's eyes, that you not be in agreement with them and yet still treat them with respect and honor, even though you vehemently disagree with them. So then fulfilling this particular command can often involve great hardship. Still, the duty remains. An example that comes to mind is when Shem and Japheth go in and place the cloak over Noah in order to hide his nakedness. Now, what that says to me is they chose not to disclose their father's shame publicly. They chose not to look upon it. They chose not to ridicule him. They covered it. But that doesn't mean they approved of it. Now, it's interesting what Leviticus says concerning this hardship in keeping this command and the costs that are involved with it. In Leviticus 19, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So first, this suggests that we are to respect our parents, and I believe it's inferred, respect that that your parents have taught you, assuming that is righteousness. But notice that this command is coupled, in Leviticus anyway, with the instruction to keep his Sabbaths. Because both of these commands acknowledge rank. Earthly Father has rank over the Son. Heavenly Father has rank over all. And so it acknowledges that we are to obey them even if we don't understand them. It also hints at the hardships and the costs that are incurred by keeping these commands because it sometimes costs you to respect your parents no matter what because sometimes you can be in total disagreement with them and have to bite through your tongue because you are in such disagreement with them so that you can show them respect that costs. In a similar way, for you to cease and desist from your work at the end of the sixth day and rest on the seventh, you're perceiving, you're thinking there are potentially costs involved here if you're a businessman. You're not being productive is your perception. But the rewards of being obedient to God's instructions far outweigh the perceived costs on our end of it. Because just because we can't understand his ways doesn't mean they're not good for us. Because his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. We shouldn't behave in a way that would offend, embarrass, or dishonor our parents. We should live our lives in a way that honors them, even if they aren't living right. And what I mean by that is that we should do what is right in God's eyes, even if our parents taught us otherwise. Because whether they acknowledge it or not, living right in God's eyes honors our parents. And furthermore, we see that there is a benefit. And that is that our days may be long in the land. Because when it comes right down to it, and I know that you know this, family is more important than school, profession, politics. It's more important than our church, more important than our synagogue, more important than our home fellowship. Family is more important than all of those things. Now, we could make the argument, who is my mother 
my brother, my sister, those that keep the commandments of my father. This is my mother. This is my brother. This is my sister. Yeshua said that. But hanging upon the tree, he looks at John and in reference to his mother, Mary, he says, John, behold your mother. In other words, out of respect for her, he let John know that I am asking you to take care of her. There is balance to all of this. Respecting our parentage, heritage, if I can use that word, is actually the foundation for the future. And it begins with the individual household, but it has national implications. For instance, when the younger generation of America displays contempt for the past, for their elders, for the foundational principles of this country, look at what chaos has been produced directly because of that. And look at the future now. And so again, respect for our parentage, our upbringing, our heritage, and particularly those things that fall within the boundaries established by God, that is the foundation for the future. But when those things are attacked, denigrated, ridiculed, when contempt is displayed for those things, then our future is very bleak. And that's exactly what's going on in our country because there are those of an up-and-coming generation that distrust and even hate what their fathers revered. It's one thing to disagree with your elders, but it's another thing entirely to revile your elders, and especially in the public square. So in summary... I believe it's entirely possible to honor our parents and not necessarily be in agreement with them. Because ultimately, and I think I said this earlier, when we honor God and we live according to his instructions, then we are honoring them whether they taught us those things or not. However, that doesn't mean that we have the license to discredit them or to ridicule them or to shame them or to uncover their nakedness. And also, as parents... They, we, have the responsibility to teach our children His ways. And so the commandment concerning honoring parents is very much connected to the first four. Finally, let me ask this question. What if you're faced with the choice of keeping the commandment to cleave unto your wife and at the same time having to honor your parents? In other words, what if you find yourself in a situation where if you cleave into your wife, that's going to cause problems with your parents or vice versa? Here's the only way I know to answer that question. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so I can only say that To be able to do both, to honor your parents and to cleave into your wife, obviously, is the ideal situation. However, I don't believe that one should dishonor their spouse in order to honor their father and mother. I believe that if you were placed in that kind of a situation, to cleave into your wife and to honor her as God intended, whether your mother and father see it that way, agree with it, that really, by honoring God's command to cleave into your wife, you are honoring them. As I said earlier, sometimes keeping this commandment, there's a lot of hardship involved. And now we move to the second tablet of commands. As I said, the first five commands are those duties that man has to God. 
The second tablet are those duties that man has to his fellow man. The first five commandments have an accompanying explanation. In other words, honor your mother and father that your days may be long upon the earth. But the last five are very brief and to the point. You shall not, period. And so these are the instructions that are given to us in how to interact with our fellow man. And the first of these last five is you shall not murder. Now, the first one on the second tablet, this command not to murder, has relationship to the first on the first tablet, which is, I'm the Lord your God. Because those who believe in God would not want to murder someone created in his image. Because God alone gives life, and he alone has the authority to require that life. And so, whether it is murder of an adult or of an unborn child in its mother's womb, it's forbidden. Murder, of course, is distinguished from killing, that is, self-defense, defense of the nation in time of war, an accidental killing, those kinds of situations. In fact, we know that the Torah protects those who kill someone accidentally until a court has reviewed the case. But Torah, on the other hand, does not allow escape from justice of those who willingly kill. So, you shall not murder. The next one is, you shall not commit adultery. And this command, the second on the second tablet, is in a parallel with the second on the first tablet. That is to not have any idols. Because one who would betray their spouse will probably probably betray God at some point in time. And so more than just the physical act of adultery, this can also involve speech, conduct, any kind of an association that compromises purity. And Yeshua addressed this aspect of this particular commandment in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, this commandment involves thought, conduct, speech, anything that compromises your purity. It's equivalent to the physical act. Of committing adultery. Now, a footnote to this, adultery is in Judaism considered to be relations with a married woman or man, and that's considered a capital offense. Fornication is something that can involve someone who's not married. So, again, adultery is considered to be relations with a married woman or a married man. You shall not steal is the next commandment. Someone's property and belongings in some way represents the fruit of their labor, their efforts, their ingenuity, their willingness to work. And so then when you steal their property, that is an assault on them personally. And this commandment would include things like forgery, embezzlement, cheating, swindling. And I would suggest we might even consider that it would include manipulation and emotional coercion as well in order to get something from someone else. There are those situations that, as far as the law of the land, something might be considered legal technically, but ethically still considered unlawful, or spiritually might be considered unlawful. For instance, taking advantage of someone's ignorance in order to gain something from them or to take advantage of their emotional distress in order to get something from them might fall under the category of stealing. 
The next commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Of course, the previous three commands address wrongs committed against our fellow man by something you actually do. But this command is addressing the wrongs committed against someone by our mouth, our tongue. So in addition to the obvious, that is providing false testimony, this would include other situations such as gossip, slander, defamation, misrepresenting them, telling a little fib. And this could be against a person. It could be against a group of people or a faith or even a race. And so as believers, we are obligated not to slander, not even our enemies, even though they are going to slander us. Because in Matthew 5, Messiah says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wanted to point this out real quick. In Islam, it is considered lawful to lie to an infidel because an infidel is not considered to be your brother. But with us, it is not so. We are not to slander, gossip, lie, bear false witness against even our enemy. And so the epitome of what we are not to be is summarized for us in the persona of Esau, who is an accuser of his brother, because he accuses Jacob of what he himself is guilty of. We are to be like Jacob, who, even though Levon was changing his wages and cheating him and using him at every turn, Jacob does only what is right. The next commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So this covet, this word, it's to long for the possession of something that we cannot obtain in an honest, moral, or a legal manner. And this command is something that I believe anyway speaks to the root of all evil actions because it deals with the inherent evil desire that is in man's heart. Because the evil inclination of man is never content to live within the boundaries that God has established. And so when there is this desire to possess something that we don't have, shouldn't have, aren't supposed to have, whatever the case may be, and we can't obtain it legally, morally, ethically, that becomes the springboard for other evil deeds. In other words, the person who doesn't covet his neighbor's possession is less likely to bear false witness against his neighbor. He's less likely to rob from him or to murder him or to commit adultery with his wife. And so, in short, this commandment is about self-control. It's about discipline. Man and government can legislate against things such as murder or theft, but they can't legislate and bring into check someone's heart. Only God has the authority to legislate that we cleanse our thoughts and our attitudes. And so our change of heart and mind will positively affect our deeds. That's why he challenges us to do that to our heart first, because he knows if our heart is purified, then our deeds will be purified. You know, we talked about 
Esau and Jacob and compared those two. In Genesis 25, it says that Jacob was a temperate man. Temperate is to say that he was a disciplined man. He had disciplined himself and his emotions. It doesn't say that he didn't have an evil thought necessarily, but he brought those evil thoughts into subjection, which is exactly what we are exhorted to do in 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Messiah. So then in Messiah, we have the power to master our desires and not let our desires master us. Because without self-control, our lives are going to be chaotic and disaster is going to be the consequence. So then the rabbinical adage asks this, who is strong? The answer, the one who controls his passions. And so interestingly, the last commandment is one that calls upon us to bring our thoughts, bring our desires into subjection with God's will and God's purpose. We could look at this last command as the anchor, so to speak. All of them are equally as important, but God knows that if he is to be viewed as the one who is our God and who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that ultimately we have to bring our own desires into subjection to his will. Now we're going to look, beginning at verse 18, at the impact and the effect that all these things that happened at Sinai, what it had on the people. And so it says, now all the people witnessed, and that term there is roim, which literally means to see. The people witnessed the thundering. We've talked about that before, literally hakolot. They witnessed the thundering, the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, literally the voice of the shofar and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. So again, that God appeared to them and spoke to them directly is to emphasize that God does speak to his people directly. He doesn't speak through the mystical methods that were employed by the magicians and the necromancers of Egypt. And so then we have this display of thunderings and lightning and all these other dramatic components because God speaks to his people directly. And this did cause them to tremble in fear. And apparently that was something that was intended, but so that they would remember. And so when they saw all this, they heard all this, it says they stood afar off. Literally, they reeled backward in panic. But it was such a dramatic event, it was intended anyway, so that they would be so affected that they would be inclined to obey God in the future without all of this drama. Now, the word witness, as I said, roim, literally means saw. They saw the thunder, in other words. Well, wait a minute. How does one see thunder? Well, the word is kolot, literally voices. And so it would suggest they saw the voices. Thus, the tradition that what they saw was in reality God's voice, which is personified as fire. And they saw God's voice, according to tradition, divide into 70 tongues of fire in order to speak in every language under heaven, because that goes back to the idea that the 
Ten Commandments are not just given to Israel, but are given to all of mankind. But presented to Israel, who were to be his oracles, his witnesses, and to go into all the other nations and speak these things. Why is this significant? Well, because of what we read in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, or Shavuot, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, or cloven tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitudes came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So the first thing I want to point out is that in Acts chapter 2, these disciples were not speaking in unknown tongues. They were speaking in known tongues, known languages, because everyone was hearing them speak these things in their own language. The second thing, of course, is that the events of Exodus 19 and 20, that it occurred on what would become the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which in Greek is known as Pentecostus, or 50th, or what we call Pentecost. And so the significance of the Sinai revelation is that God was entering into covenant with his people, that he was calling his people to be his witnesses throughout the world and to take his laws and his instructions to all of the people. In Acts chapter 2, what's happening? Messiah, in response to the question, will you again restore the kingdom unto Israel at this time? He told his disciples, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has reserved in his own hand, but you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Go out there and be my witnesses. But tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which is what we just read in Acts chapter 2. And so then, Acts chapter 2 is in some ways a reflection of what happened in Exodus 19 and 20. The Sinai revelation is the fact that God is entering into covenant with his people and his people are consenting to enter into that covenant with him. And so then we have the thick darkness, the thick cloud, which forms the canopy over the mountain or the chuppah. And then he offers them his ketubah, his marriage contract, the Ten Commandments. And so then they consent to enter into this relationship with him and say, more or less, I do. We will hear and we will do. And so then it is significant because of this covenant context that we see the lightning flashes that we just read about here in chapter 20 are referred to as lapidim, as opposed to what we read in Exodus 19, barakim. In Exodus 19, the word for lightning was barakim, barak, lightning, barakim, plural. Here, however, it's lapidim, and that's significant because the word lapid is typically rendered torch. An example of this rendering would be found in Genesis 15. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven 
and a burning torch. And that phrase there, burning torch, is lapid esh, or a torch of fire. And what did that torch of fire do? It passed between those pieces, that is, those pieces of the sacrifices that Abram had cut up and set out there. And so then, this is called the covenant between the pieces, because on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram. And so what I'm trying to bring out here is that in Genesis 15, this burning torch passed between the pieces as indication of God coming into covenant with Avram. And likewise, in Exodus 20, the people saw the lapidim, they saw the burning torches even as God was calling them to come into covenant with him, and they were consenting to do so. So then, what we see in Genesis 15 is being reaffirmed with Abraham's seed at Mount Sinai. The burning torch, the lapid, in Genesis 15 is the same word that's being used in Exodus 20. It's just rendered lightning here. And again, it it also says that they saw the voice of the shofar, which again suggests that they saw more than what we think. There's a lot more going on here, perhaps, than what meets the eye as we read the text. But the display and the fright that they felt, all of this caused them to withdraw from the scene. And here's what they said next. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. All right. They did not wish for God to speak to them, thinking that if he didn't speak to them, they would live. So we could argue that the motivation that they had was the fear of dying. And that's what prompted them to agree to do whatever God tells us to do. Now, this event is or this exchange is also recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want to read to you, beginning in verse 23. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. The fear of dying prompted them to agree to do what God instructed thinking for him to cease speaking to them would save their lives. But as soon as the perceived danger had passed by, they're going to, in time, forget their promise to hear and obey. That's the typical human response. We get worried. We get afraid for our lives. We say whatever we've got to say. And then as soon as all that subsides, we go back to doing what's really in our heart. And the fact that they really didn't mean this that they were really motivated by fear of dying is evidenced by the fact that just a little later, they're going to have Aaron craft a golden calf and say, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Not only that, but God makes it very clear that to obey him 
was never in their hearts? Because he says in verse 28 of Deuteronomy 5, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So first of all, we want to see that God agreed with them. They're right. If he continued to speak to them, they were going to die. But I argue that it was not the fear of God that prompted their desire for him to quit speaking, but it was the fear of dying that prompted it. And so then we see a principle here. When God speaks to us, when his word penetrates our heart, our flesh must die. Because God's word is not intended to appeal to our flesh, but actually it's a challenge to our flesh to die. When we were born again, we were born again so that we might learn how to die, that is to ourselves. Because flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and therefore, why would God speak to us in in such a way that would accommodate our flesh or make our flesh feel at ease? Therefore, their fear of dying, that is their flesh dying, is what prompted Israel to say, God, stop talking to us. Because they're thinking that if he quits talking, they're going to live, that is their flesh. But in reality, if he doesn't speak to us, if we can't hear his word, if we can't bear to hear his word, we're going to die. In short, they sought to save their lives, not realizing that in the long term, they were losing their lives. So then, people who understand that to live, we must die, are those people who wish for God to speak into their lives. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that those people at the mountain wanted God to quit talking because they could not bear what was being commanded. And so then it is understood that when he does speak to us, when his word does come to us, our flesh is not going to receive it well. But if we're going to live, then we're going to have to allow his word to do its work in us. And I believe in a manner of speaking, that's what Moses was trying to convey to them. He said, God has come to prove you. That is what's in your heart. Why? So that you won't sin so that you'll choose to abstain from the desires of the flesh and that you'll choose to do his will. And for this purpose, that his fear may be before you, because it is the fear of God or offending God that prevents us from sinning. And if that fear isn't instilled in us, then what would keep us from following our own ways? In Psalm 111, we're told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Wisdom from above, then, cannot be attained without the fear and the respect of our Creator. That fear, in some way, acts like a seed, but the fruition of wisdom is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Because that's why he wants us to serve him, because we love him, not necessarily because we are afraid of him. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so... At the beginning of the nation, we see the fundamental and recurring flaw, and that is the wrong thing was in their heart because God said, oh, that they had a heart within them to keep my commandments.
Verse 21, it says, And the people stood afar off. And that Hebrew term is merachok, or from a distance, which I believe also hints at the condition of their heart. Because the Creator wishes to dwell among His people. Why? That they might draw close to Him. The Hebrew root word karav, kufreshbek, it means to draw near, it means to approach. And this is the root word that gives us the word korban, or offering. That korban is what is emblematic of our desire to draw near to Him, who is a consuming fire. And so as we draw near to Him, what are we to do? We are to die. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which again is demonstrating that if in reality we're going to live, then we must be willing to die. And so while the people drew afar off, Verse 21 says that Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Because Moses demonstrates what the Creator desires. He wants his people to approach him and in the process die to themselves because that's what is expected of us if we are going to draw near to him. And so as believers, we are given access through the Messiah and we are encouraged to draw near to our Creator, and thus the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He wants us to draw near to Him and Messiah has made that possible. So if we want to draw away from him, isn't that indicative of a heart that really doesn't fear him? It just doesn't want to be killed by him. We also, once again, see that God was in the thick darkness. This is a concept, as I said, we developed at large and extensively in the Torah portion commentary on Brashit, so we're not going to expound upon it here. Just once again, it's demonstrated for us in Psalm 1811. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And so we come to verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. So what God is doing here is making the point that Israel saw and heard from themselves. They didn't receive secondhand information. Therefore, they are witnesses and consequently responsible for what they've been witness to. Because with information or knowledge comes the responsibility to take action, to choose who you're going to serve. How are you going to serve him? Are you going to do it your way or his way? They didn't have secondhand information. And so... If it were not for this first-hand information, they could have been easily deceived. And then he reminds them that in service to him, they are to not make with me gods of gold and silver. Also, they are not to fashion images of gold and silver as some type of representation of God. Because he can't be represented by a symbol or an icon. Because, well, in Hebrew, he's called ensof. There is no end. He's limitless. He's fathomless. We can't comprehend him. And so what gives us the right to take 
the creator who is fathomless, who has no beginning and end, and then try to put him in a box or, in this case, in an image. And apparently that was something that needed to be said again because in the future, we're going to see them do just what he told them not to do. That is, fashion a golden calf. So we shouldn't be surprised to see that this is addressed yet again in Deuteronomy 4, just as they prepare to enter the land. He says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptibly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. In short, God can't be represented by an inanimate object, even if someone has the best of intentions. He also instructs them that they are not to make for themselves gods of gold, which would imply foreign gods. And so all of this would be the improper form of worship, because this would be disavowing that I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, and... This would be ignoring the command not to make any graven images, etc. So this would be the improper way to approach me, to worship me, to enter into this relationship with me. However, there is a proper way that I am to be worshipped, which he addresses in the next verses. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. First of all, we see that this altar that he approves of is constructed of natural components. The fact that it is earthen might hint at man because we all came from the dust of the earth. And so in turn, hinting at the need for us to be a living sacrifice upon that altar, because that's what this relationship is all about. Now, the walls of this altar that's described here were later described as being bronze-coated wood, but the inside was left hollow and filled with earth. And so that explains why it was called both an earthen altar, but also later a brazen altar. But then he says, you can also build me an altar made from stones if they're natural. And of course, this was the type of altar that was used in conjunction with the temple in Jerusalem, of course, replacing the brazen altar, so to speak. However, he makes it very clear that these stones are to be unhewn. In other words, they would only have the stamp of God's handiwork, not man's, which I believe kind of hints at the fact that his people are regarded as living stones, according to 1 Peter 2, and are being built up into a spiritual house. Furthermore, to use a tool, and that word in Hebrew literally means a sword or an iron instrument, to do that would corrupt the stone and consequently the altar. The Talmud explains that concept this way. Iron shortens life while the altar prolongs it. The sword, or weapon of war, is the symbol of strife, whereas the altar is the symbol of reconciliation between God and man, and between man and his fellow. And so finally, we are given another prohibition concerning the altar, that it is not to have steps, but a ramp, 
having no steps was to ensure that the priest's nakedness or his limbs wouldn't be exposed as he would ascend the altar. And I believe, again, that hints at the reason for the altar. Men would use this altar to approach the Creator and be reconciled to the Creator. Well, why was there a need for that? Because in the garden, man had at one time had that access, but then disobeyed his commandment, ate the mixed fruit, where before they didn't realize they were naked, their eyes were opened at that point, and then they did realize that they were naked and their eyes were opened to good and evil. And so then, that disobedience resulted in their exile from God. But still, before he sent them away out of the garden, we're told that he clothed them. Because it would seem that God does not wish for anyone's nakedness to be exposed, and for multiple reasons. Number one, I believe, because he's merciful and he desires to cover our shame, and especially when our heart is to return to him. Also, those who are called to repentance, those who desire to return to him, they would acknowledge the need that their nakedness be covered, that they be clothed. I believe this is alluded to in Revelation chapter 3 when Yeshua says, because you say, speaking to Laodicea, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so then... It seems that nakedness is emblematic of shame, and the refusal to cover that nakedness would describe those who are shameful, or maybe the better word would be shameless. And so then, this speaks to the requirement that God has to those who would approach Him. They must do so in humility. They must be cognizant of the fact that they have been in disobedience, and so they must acknowledge the shame of their disobedience, but also be desirous that he would mercifully cover their shame. You see, the nations that are without God and who pay no attention to his commands are proud. They think nothing of exposing their nakedness. And thus, they act in a shameful manner, yet without any kind of remorse. And so as we conclude this portion, the Creator calls upon us, to come back to him. But there is a way to come back to me because it's always been his intention that he dwell among his people. And so it's interesting to note that this portion is giving us some details about the recreation of God's people by giving them his 10 commands. Because the creation of his people in the very beginning was with Ten creative utterances. For instance, let there be light. But for this recreation to occur, it required that there were ten plagues, and those ten plagues were with the purpose of breaking and destroying the bonds of their slavery. And so, likewise, for you and I to be born again, to be a new creation, the bonds that were our lives before we came to the Messiah, those things that kept us in sin and slaves to sin had to be broken. Still, 
in these instructions that we are given, they come after those bonds have been broken. Again, they came out of Egypt, were delivered from Egypt, saved from Egypt because they placed their trust in the blood of a lamb. And then having come into this relationship, now God gives them the instructions that are to define them as a new creation, so to speak. And so likewise, those of us who have been born again of the Messiah, placed our trust in the blood of the Lamb, have been delivered from the bondage of sin, nonetheless are given his instructions as a manifestation as we keep them that we love him, but also to define us as this new creation, to demonstrate our willingness to follow him and to crucify our flesh every day so that we destroy the works of the old man so that the new creation can be manifest in the earth. And with that, we come to the conclusion of this very lengthy, but I believe enriching Torah portion. Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a BillCloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.